Hey, Bill. How was your day? It was good, but I'm a little anxious. Uh, do you really think this podcast thing is going to work? I know the process can be as important as the outcome sometimes, so uh, let's, let's just trust the process. Hey, I, I trust you, but uh, this can be a tough crowd. <laughs> uh, okay, let's do it. All right. Hello, uh, I'm Dwayne Kahn. Um, I'm a uh, licensed psychologist in the state of Florida and also your uh, assistant program director at the Counseling and Wellness Center at New College. And I'm also a member of the 4C Committee, that's the Committee on Campus Climate and Culture. And I'm Bill Woodson. I'm a PhD in Organizational Leadership and Chief Diversity Officer and Dean of Outreach uh, here at New College. And uh, some people just say new, right? Did they say new, not new college? Uh, I think those people that say new um, are people that love the place after a while, we're all novos, right? Um, so to all, all the novos out there, let's begin by saying a little bit about what we're talking about here. So this is Making a Better New. We wanted to create a space to open a conversation about our campus commitment to making New College as excellent a space for our emotional health, as excellent a place to work for faculty and staff, as excellent a place to live for our students, as it is an excellent space for education and research. We also wanna talk about what's being done to achieve that ideal and respond to, to questions from the community. So why a podcast format and why structure this as a conversation? Well, I, I'm still not sure about this podcast thing, but I, I do love the art of public speaking, except uh, when I'm the one in front of the microphone. I, I'd rather study it than do it, but I listen to a lot of podcasts and I think they lend themselves to being timely and engaging and they feel more, maybe uh, more human, uh, you know, especially when you compare it to another email or another newsletter. And I think done right, they can be a great way to share stories and perspectives and provide information. Uh, and why a conversation? Well, you know, on our campus and, and in our country, there's a real absence of, 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 of real talk of, of, you know, right now in our society, we see huge disconnects our words hurt each other, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And instead of communicating to exchange ideas, to, to build alignment, to support each other, too often we're attacking each other. We're breaking relationships. We cancel each other. I think positive, respectful, affirming conversations, including conversations about difficult topics is how we're gonna make progress. So I thought this podcast could be a way to model that. You know, generally speaking, we've got to invest in making New College work better as a social space. And it's got to work for everyone. You know, the inclusive campus climate workshops that we recently completed, they're like one of those investments. Uh, I'm, I'm on board with making New College a better social space. Um, that sounds really positive. Um, but is it realistic? Uh, I mean, we know that people can be entrenched. Um, what's their motivation to change? Um, I know that um, there's a number of topics in psychology that talk about the, the interplay between feeling safe and protecting ourselves and um, that being an op opposing process to being able to connect with people either. Oftentimes we have to choose between safety or connection, safety or connection. Um, if people don't feel safe, they won't engage. Well, that's true. But I do think that the conflicts and the tensions that we're experiencing today 
both in our campus and in the streets in Portland, Minneapolis, New York, Atlanta, around the country and around the world, I think those conflicts set the table for the change that we're seeking. Virtually no one is satisfied by the status quo. We know as a campus, we have to evolve. We must get better. We gotta get better navigating a broader mix of identities than what we have today. But at the same time, we also know we don't do well supporting the range of identities we have now. Let me talk about a few of those just to give you some examples. We're proud, we should be proud. We have a strong LGBTQ representation and yet that community continues to report experiences, systemic issues that leave them feeling marginalized. And we've not done enough to support the growth, the development of faculty, staff, and, and especially our students who maybe didn't have a lot of interaction outside of that sexual binary and heteronormative spaces that define our country. And we should do more to support that. You know, here's another example. In the past 10 years, we've launched a black student union. We've had a notable increase in number of students of color serving in student leadership roles. We offer incredible Black History Month programming, and we have an extensive history of engagement with local communities of color. The pace of engagement is increasing now, supported with investments like the Mellon Grants and the Baranza Grant, the Access Leadership Initi Initiative. Yet our students of color report racial profiling and other experiences that leave them feeling less than welcome. We have that dubious distinction among various communities of being both anti-Semitic and anti-Arab. I could go on. And, you know, we're a campus where the majority of students and the majority of faculty are female. Our three division chairs and our provost are all female. And they're all talented, energetic scholars to boot. Yet, we still hear multiple reports of misogynistic experiences. These are real problems. The root causes are multiple. There's systemic racism, misogyny, racial profiling, unconscious bias, white privilege, heteronormativity. These are all real and present. It's part of our country's history, and it's a part of today's society. It's a part of our culture. It's permeated the spaces that we've grown up in, and it's active on our campus today. These are heavy topics. Um, I want to talk about those investments, but first let me ask you, you mentioned that these dynamics are part of our history and our culture. Uh, we have different cultural and historical experiences, you and I. Um, do you feel that we're both affected in the same ways? Oh, that's a good point. Uh, you had a very different life experience from me. You've grown up on three different continents, uh, Guyana, South America, Zambia, Central Africa, and London before you even stepped foot on continent number four and settled here in Florida. So, hey, lucky you. I'm sure they don't have racism and sexism in those other places. <laughs> I, I wish that were the case, Bill. Um, I actually come from a colonial background and um, when my family left Guyana, um, it was amid race riots that occurred after uh, we got independence. Oh, wow. Um, so, um, you know, these issues appear all over the place, unfortunately. Um, how have you been affected? Also, so for me, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s and exposed to all of the common truths and all the widely held falsehoods that marked those decades. You know, today, of course, 2020 has its own fabric of truth and popular falsehoods. You know, it's interesting to see how little some things have changed. I have to say, when it comes to our ideas about identity, we've evolved tremendously in some ways. I mean, I was 
already 10 years old when the Supreme Court ruled that Virginia law barring the rights of whites and blacks to marry was unconstitutional. Virginia is right next door to Washington, D.C., where I grew up. And federal affirmation of the right of same-sex couples to marry just celebrated its fifth birthday last month. So that's been the law of the land for less than one-tenth of my lifetime. To be fair, there has been significant change in my lifetime, at least in the legislation. But of course, equal treatment, which is supposed to be the foundation of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And that's work that I've been drawn to for 20 years now. Uh, so I've been actively celebrating each of these expansion of protections, personal freedoms, each social shift that's brought an additional measure of equality to humankind. I mean, that, that's exciting. It's exciting to see that growth, but that doesn't mean that I don't occasionally stumble or operate from a value framework that's been unfortunately flavored by social norms that used to make it okay to marginalize one identity over another. But my stumbles just reinforce my desire to, to grow my own self-awareness. They remind me that no one is fully evolved. We're all human. We all have context that we grew up in. We all have blind spots as a result. And, and I hope we're all on a path. Hopefully we're all getting better. And hopefully we're all getting closer to our aspirations. I mean, I, I think in a number of ways, people aspire to be better um, as an ongoing process. Um, otherwise, you know, I wouldn't be a therapist. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, that means different things to different people, you know, what it means to, to aspire to be better, um, to be in that process. Um, does being better mean being more inclusive? You know, that, that's a good question. And I, I, I can't pretend to know what's in the heart of every new college faculty member, every employee. You know, not everybody's aspiring. I'm, I'm sure there's at least a few folks who, who think they've already reached their destination. They are maximally evolved already. They couldn't be more inclusive or more woke if they tried, at least uh, not in their own minds. But I'm also sure that there's some folks who think that this focus on building skills, growing their self-awareness, understanding how their identity and their life experiences, how their biases impact their effectiveness in collaborating with others, that their ability to communicate without being misinterpreted, all of this is probably just a, a bunch of social science powered mumbo jumbo in the minds of at least a few. Ideas like unconscious bias and systemic racism, they might think it's either non-existent or overblown. And I'll tell you what, folks who are in that category, they can save their time and turn this podcast off right now because if that's what they see, if they see on the news and they see on our campus, if what they've experienced in the inclusive campus climate training sessions, if all those exposures haven't convinced them that these things are real and that these things are getting in the way of us realizing that the things that we want as a campus and as a country, if they don't understand it by now, then there's not much for us to talk about. But I, I don't believe that there's a lot of that. I really do believe that most people want to see that growth and that change and that inclusion is a part of it. But I acknowledge that there may be some. I think for the rest of us, and I think that's the great majority, I do have an idea or two that I honestly believe can unlock some of the progress that we're seeking to make. Uh, I also am um, the eternal optimist. Um, so uh, my hope is that people are wanting to engage and find a place um, for that conversation. Um, you know, 
recently the campus was involved um, or witnessed a campus-wide email dialogue about the HVAC system uh, back in June when we were preparing for reopening uh, in the time of COVID. Uh, do you believe that that communication involved or connects to these issues of identity or unconscious bias and privilege that you're talking about? Yeah, I think they do. I, I think that many of us would like to believe that when we're speaking to someone, our identity, the identity of the other person, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter, right? When two people talk, their age, their race, their sex, their job title, their education, in a perfect world, it wouldn't matter. Yeah, but the real deal though, is that it does matter. It can change everything. It's absolutely common that because of the context that we're aware of, or because of something at an unconscious level, at a subconscious level, or our lack of awareness, it can distort the message, it can amplify or obscure our meaning, or it can change the emotional impact completely that our words have on others. We know conflicts between people happen all the time, but I think that misunderstanding, not antagonism is often at the root. Somebody says something, intentionally or unintentionally, it comes across as a veiled threat, as an insult, as a violation of privacy, as dismissive, or all of the above. And then things go south from there. You know, there's an interesting relationship between the idea of intent versus impact. Yeah, both are critical, but it's a fundamental aspect of human behavior, as I've observed, that we tend to hold ourselves accountable for our intention. I didn't mean to hurt you, so you, you shouldn't be upset at me. But then it's very human to hold others accountable for their impact. Hey, you insulted me. You must be a jerk. Now, I think those reactions are very human, predictable even. When what we've seen at New College is a fear-driven environment where people fail to take responsibility for their impact and they fail to even consider what another person's intent might have been. And when we're offended, we want to dish it out as good as we've taken it. And I think that's human, but We've, if we move to a space where positive impact is assumed and where we correct offenses received, not, not out of our hurt or our pain, not with a desire to even a score, but with the belief that when people know better, that they'll do better, I believe that over time we can reduce that level of hurt and fear that seems to oftentimes plague our community. And that doesn't mean that we don't call it when people behave in ways that we find offensive. But it does mean we must remain invested in sustaining relationships, even when we're offended. On the other hand, we have to have a process for addressing repeat offenders. And I don't have any doubt that there aren't repeat offenders out there. Working with President Don O'Shea and Human Resources AVP Loretta Shields, I'm confident that we will be successful in establishing stronger processes for building effective communication skills and at the same time establishing strong expectations that where skills are lacking, that that's going to be addressed and that consistent offenders will not be tolerated indefinitely. I think when we get this right, those extended email corrections on campus-wide distribution lists 
should no longer be necessary. Mm. I, these are heavy topics. Um, when we think about the history of um, oppression or systemic uh, kinds of issues that you were talking about previously. Um, and uh, these are difficult conversations uh, to have. You've mentioned other campus leaders. These leaders, as well as you, um, are responsible for systems that ensure accountability. There are some folks that would say that our climate isn't hospitable, be isn't hospitable because of an absence of, of accountability. Uh, how would you respond to that assertion? You know, that's, that's a good point. And, and I've not been a novo long enough to be definitive based on direct observation, but I definitely have been witness to gaps in sustaining accountability. And based on what I've been told, this type of shortcoming, as you say, it has a history. We've been slow as an institution to respond. And there are situations where, based on what I know, I believe our institutional response has been inadequate, has been inadequate. And I'm committed to working with my colleagues to strengthen those accountability systems and realign people's expectations. It, it, it's critical to the achievement of our goals. I'm glad that you, uh, you clarified inadequate there, right? Um, because um, uh, these are delicate topics. And one of the things that, that makes them delicate is trauma um, that people have previously been involved in um, or currently, you know, are in the midst of, of feeling traumatized um, or marginalized in some way. Uh, one of my areas of practice is trauma recovery, particularly for people from marginalized groups. Um, how do you think the idea of trauma factors into our challenges around climate and personal safety? You know, this is an area that's relatively new for me. And, you know, in the past year, I've been exposed to some research around the impact of trauma on how we communicate, how we process, uh, how we respond to others. And it's very exciting research. And I think it will strongly inform our curriculum for professional development of our faculty, staff, and our students. I mean, as a trauma professional, I'm, I'm strongly on board um, with ways that we can create more safety um, around these uh, discussions and these topics that can feel vulnerable. Um, so that sounds promising. How does the inclusive campus climate training um, that you've been engaged in factor into your vision for the future? So I, I'm excited that, you know, the ICC training series was a major milestone, but it's just one of many steps along the way. It's a journey that began with the assessment by the president and his cabinet that led to the creation of the chief diversity officer role that I now occupy. It continued with a review of years of campus climate data, further work that was done by the Committee on Campus Climate and Culture, we call it the 4C, uh, the survey work that was done by some new college students, uh, even new college faculty. You know, it's continued with the engagement of Accelerate Coaching and Consulting. Uh, Unita Brewer, who's worked with myself and with the 4C to develop the training design that became the ICC training series. And over 200 new college faculty and staff have now completed that training. And we will be working with the faculty of color and underrepresented groups, they call themselves FOCUG, to develop a series of dialogues and workshop, workshops that are designed to deepen our knowledge around these issues of identity, unconscious bias, microaggressions, 
and how they play out in history and in our community. They're also gonna work on principles that are gonna help us to grow in our comfort and our skill in how we engage with each other. It's been gratifying to me that not only has attendance at the ICC webinars been very strong, but people have reported enjoying their experience and feeling energized about how they can leverage the lessons learned to enhance their own professional effectiveness. I'm looking forward to getting to the next phase in this initiative underway, which is gonna begin this fall. So, you know, we talked a little bit about um, the endeavors that we've been making um, on campus uh, previously. Uh, we've talked about raising awareness and skills, and, and I'm glad to hear you talk about accountability as well. So this all sounds very important. Uh, the trainings have been mostly focused on staff and faculty so far. How will students participate in this? Student involvement is going to be essential. Uh, last year, we provided an abbreviated training in bias and micro inequities to our student leaders. You know, this year, we're really wanting to in integrate a stronger anti-racism perspective into the student training. And this is a theme that we'll also be introducing into the faculty and staff trainings as well. We also plan on creating spaces for faculty, staff, and students to come together in small groups for dialogue and continued exploration. We're calling these kitchen table conversations. And you know, you and I are gonna be working together on how do we can figure out the details and we'll have more to share and we'll come back and, and update the group, uh, our, our podcast listening audience in just an, another week or two, I hope. Our vision is going to be that New College not only emerges from this effort as a much more supportive and inclusive community, but we actually become a model for how a college community can provide an exceptional destination for people from a wide variety of backgrounds and identities, for faculty, for staff, and for students who are drawn to us because of the support and the safety that our campus community offers. Um, Bill, a model for how a college community can provide an exceptional destination. Um, uh, I, I love the sound of that. Um, it, it sounds like a welcome and impressive vision that people can get behind. Um, I'm looking forward to working with you to realize that vision um, and to our future conversations about um, how we're moving towards that goal. Um, I, I, I kind of like the idea of kitchen table conversations. Um, food has always been part of my culture, um, a place where we come together and talk about things. So. Um, we're gonna to get together and continue this conversation, yes? Absolutely, I'm looking forward to it too. But first, you gotta show me how to get this recording out of my computer and up to the cloud. Yeah, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how that works. Um, that's why we, <laughs> we have students, amazing <laughs> students, like uh, uh, our, uh, our amazing, shout out to Stephen Kisheshian for serving as our production manager and sound engineer for, for this production. Absolutely, thanks Stephen. Uh, Bill, thank you so much. Um, and uh, to the listeners, thank you for joining us for this brief conversation. We talked about some ways that we may have been armored and protected in our community, ways that may have led to a culture that is challenged in our ability to feel safe enough to have closer relationships. Bill has outlined for us some avenues that we've been working on as an institution and what his office has been doing. Uh, we hope that you'll be able to join us uh, for the next steps on that journey towards an inclusive campus where everyone feels welcome and that they belong. 
We'll begin with the upcoming kitchen table conversations scheduled to be revealed. And I know that there'll be a number of other programs that will be discussed uh, that are coming soon. Until then, please take care of yourselves, be safe in this time of global illness and challenge, and take time to tell those you love that they matter. Until next time, take care. Bye for now. 